Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 420. Henry Ford said that nothing is particularly difficult if you divide it up into small jobs. So a lot of times we're fooled into believing there's a mountain to climb, but the way you climb a mountain is one step at a time. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost jump starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Mitch Williams. Mitch, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Mark, I am always ready to get in the left lane and see what this thing will do. <laughs> awesome. I love it. I think you're not one of those guys that sits in the left lane and goes slow. I think you're going to keep up the pace just fine here, so I appreciate you being with me. Mitch Williams is the president and CEO of Restoration Parts Unlimited. His company consists of six brands that manufacture and distribute aftermarket restoration products. They include Trim Parts, Parts Unlimited, The Right Stuff Detailing, Soft Seal, First Place Auto Products, and Mr. Mustang. Mitch served as the SEMA Board of Directors for 12 years where he was the SEMA chairman in 2005 to 2007. He also ran a conglomerate of companies for Pilot Automotive, a supplier to AutoZone, Walmart, Sears Advanced, O'Reilly's Amazon, and Pep Boys. So Mitch, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more about your business, your career, and of course your passion for automobiles? Mark, there's actually a seventh company now by the name of Corvette America, which is one of the largest Corvette manufacturers and wholesalers in the country. All right. Um, basically, everything everything you'd want for a Corvette to restore a Corvette from about 1953 up through C6s and C7s. Ah, very cool. So the idea behind Restoration Parts Unlimited Incorporated was that we had a situation in the market where most of these companies are entrepreneurial. Uh, I'll give you a great example about how Corvette America was started. The owner, the founder of Corvette America, had a big block 65 Corvette. He wrecked it. And in the course of tracking down parts to repair it, he discovered that the parts were more valuable than the car at the time. <laughs> so he said, hmm, maybe I should be making parts. Uh, so we had another company that uh, where the entrepreneur discovered that Corvair had been kind of abandoned by General Motors and that there was still a, um, a quite a bit of demand for Corvair parts in the market and also quite a, a strong following of the Corvair automobile. So he went around to various 
uh, General Motors or Chevrolet dealerships that weren't interested in Corvair parts anymore, bought up all the new old stock Corvair parts, and began visiting car shows and swap meets selling Corvair parts out of the trunk of his car. Those are just two examples of how very typical examples of how a lot of our companies and a lot of companies in the industry basically were founded. Very cool and very interesting. So the way your company operates, you have all these different companies underneath one big umbrella. Is that right? That's correct. That's the RPUI umbrella. Awesome. Great. Well, I'm sure you supply a lot of fun and joy to those folks out there that are restoring vehicles and need parts that are going to fit and are going to work for their uh, mostly vintage cars, right? Almost exclusively vintage cars. And I describe what we're doing, Mark, as really we're, we're selling time travel. And time travel, if, if you could go back in time, you would probably go back to a certain place that has special memories for you. It might be a school or a place or a, a different place, state you used to live in. There's usually a guy or a girl involved, and there's usually a car involved. So <laughs> what we're doing is helping people revisit the past, and um, we find that there's a very strong demand for that. We, we, um, we all have those memories, and that's really what we're selling. Oh, absolutely. I've restored some cars that have come from my past, and uh, there's nothing better than knowing that you can go find a part, especially those hard-to-find parts that are going to fit right and work really well. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a really great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Mitch, take the wheel. Well, I have uh, I have two. Uh, one is that Henry Ford said that nothing is particularly difficult if you divide it up into small jobs. A lot of times we're fooled into believing there's a mountain to climb, but the way you climb a mountain is one step at a time. So we, we're not afraid to think big because of that. And the second one is I, I'm a fan of Theodore Roosevelt, and Theodore Roosevelt said, in times of great decision, the best thing you can do is uh, to make the right decision. The next best thing you can do is to make the wrong decision uh, because you can stop and fix that, and the worst <laughs> possible thing you can do is nothing. Uh, so we are big believers in doing something, and if we're wrong, we back up and fix it, and then we get it right uh, and move forward. You know, those are two great quotes, and I appreciate you sell, uh, sharing both of those with us. The Henry Ford quote, there's so many great Henry Ford quotes that I've heard here in Cars, yeah, but that's the first time I've heard that one. So I appreciate you sharing that. Let's go back in time a little bit and ask you to share something that instigated your passion for cars. Maybe this happened when you were a little boy or maybe it was a little bit later, but is there a pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy? Well, I'd have to say it's so early I couldn't pinpoint it because all of the early pictures of me as a child, I'm holding a toy car in my hand. <laughs> so I, I don't know if my parents were, were doing that on purpose or if I, that was you know that was a choice I made, but... Uh, I do know that well before I realized I was a car guy, uh, I had those toy cars in my hand. I grew up sort of in the shadow of Atlanta Motor Speedway. I remember sitting in the porch swing on my grandparents' front porch, and I could hear the start of the race over at Atlanta Motor Speedway. I was still too young to get in, so I talked my grandparents into dropping me off at the speedway, and I went to my first NASCAR race when I was 11, by myself. When you were 11? When I was 11. Well, wow. I also learned to drive when I was 11. I was driving on my own when I was 12. Oh, my gosh. So we didn't have a lot of rules in my family, Mark. So, <laughs> well, good. Plus, back in those days, if you knocked down the neighbor's mailbox, you just fixed it. Right. You know, no one called their lawyer and no one got sued or anything. You just fixed whatever you broke. So I started driving on my own at 11, or driving by, uh, learning to drive at 11 and driving on my own at 12. I was tall enough to get away with it. And uh, so then when the, when I, 
talked my way into Atlanta Motor Speedway at, at age 11. I saw what all that noise was about that I'd been hearing for years, and I was pretty well hooked at that point. Um, it looked like something that was kind of out of my realm of understanding. I didn't have any mechanical skills at the time or anything. So basically what I started doing was uh, looking for jobs that would give me mechanical skills because I thought the only way I'm ever going to be able to do this uh, is if I can build my own car, build my own engines, that kind of thing. So so what I did was I, I took a job, typical path into the industry. I took a job pumping gas, and I'd stand around after my shift was over, and I'd ask the mechanics, you know, what is that? And they would say, that's a water pump. Well, what does it do? Well, it pumps water. Where does the water go? How does the water get there? You know, all that kind of stuff. So sure. I started picking up basic mechanical skills that way. Then I had an opportunity to go to work for a German guy that I'd gone to school with who was a German, who was a German citizen, and he, uh, he, wanted, he opened a BMW and Audi repair shop. So I uh, worked my way through college as a BMW and Audi technician. Still was not planning to make an automotive career out of it. I was going to school to become a clinical psychologist. And uh, I invested nine years in becoming a clinical psychologist. And one day I woke up and uh, I had started two automotive businesses while I was in college, was racing sports cars while I was in college, ran the Baja 1000 while I was in college, and I realized that I'd started a career without really meaning to. So oh. I was uh, out for a beer one night with one of my professors, and we were kind of sharing life stories, and he and we compared incomes. And uh, I was repairing cars for a living. He was a an associate professor of psychology, so he was basically what I was trying to be. And I was making more money than he was. <laughs> and I said, "Wait a minute, yeah, why am I going to school to make less money?" So I I realized then that my career just took a fork in the road and the fork in the road was automotive and it has been ever since. Oh, awesome story. Thanks for sharing all that. How fortunate to sit on your grandparents' porch and listen to the race cars and then finally be able to go in and see what was going on behind all that sound behind the big fences. So great story. What I'd love to do now, Mitch, is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and get our hands a little dirty, crawl under the hood and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that situation? And even more important, what did it teach you? Well, early in my career, I was kind of an army of one and I had to do everything myself. So I was usually a one person department. I was the motorsports guy for a French lighting company, a very famous French lighting company by the name of SEV, who, whose major brands were CBA and Marshall. Yeah. I was uh, their motorsports guy for many years. And I described that experience as extremely career shaping because I moved to Detroit when I was 23 years old. Uh, I'd never really been much of anywhere. So I moved to Detroit when I was 23 years old because I thought if you're going to be in the car business and you're really serious about making it as a career, sooner or later, you've got to pass through Detroit. And I thought that was my chance, and it was a great experience, really one, probably the most important career decision I ever made. So I worked for the French for seven years, but this was at a time when no one was talking about a global market. International business was still something very rare and very new. I call it, I was global before we even knew what global was. <laughs> and uh, the, the major competitor of CBA Marshall was Hella, and Hella and I had talked a couple of times, and they uh, they were building factories in the United States and clearly made a a big commitment to the United States. Uh, I've always been fascinated with German cars and German things, uh, thanks to my friend that I worked for at the BMW and Audi shop. So uh, I went to work for Hella as a regional sales manager. Three years later, was promoted to president. I was the youngest president in uh, 99 years wow. of, of existence at the time of Hella. And so uh, 
you know, like a lot of 32-year-olds that walk in and suddenly you've got this big weight thrust upon you and you realize you're not quite as smart as you thought you were and <laughs> your real success or failure depends on how good of a team you can build. I have never been much of an individual sports player. Uh, I played college ice hockey and so I learned, I learned the value of teamwork actually on an ice rink, not in the automotive industry. So I basically applied what I'd learned in psychology and what I'd learned on the hockey rink to business. And fortunately for me, it worked. But I realized very quickly that I wasn't going to accomplish very much by myself. It really depended on how good of a team we could put together. Uh, yeah, great advice there. Something really important for our listeners out there, those entrepreneurs who are having to do it all themselves. And when they start to get to that point where they realize I need some help here, that they've got to learn to delegate, build a very strong team and let things go. Fantastic. Wonderful history there. Let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I like to call a career aha moment. And since you worked for lighting companies, you'll love this one. It's a time when the headlights came on and illuminated your way for that new idea, that new direction that you had. And tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into a success. Well, before my aha moment, I would say I always viewed the industry as a kind of personal journey. And uh, one day, a gentleman called me up and said, why don't you run for the SEMA board of directors? And I, I never even thought about it. And I was running Hella at the time. So we, we were a German lighting company, heavily into BMW, Porsche, Audi, Mercedes kinds of things. But the truck market was really starting to take off. The off-road market and the off-road racing market were heavily involved in pro rally, endurance racing, like Sebring and Daytona and Le Mans and places like that. But we were still very, very European. So a gentleman calls me up and said, I think you should run for the SEMA board of directors. And, and I kind of dismissed the idea at first. And he was very persistent. And he convinced me to run for the SEMA board of directors. What I explained to him was that I was an international guy. I'd never worked for an American company. I sold parts for imported cars. Uh, I was a road racer, not a drag racer, uh, although I had drag raced, but I, most of my experience in racing was in road racing. So I kind of went through the litany of, of reasons why I wasn't a good fit with SEMA. And his response was, you're, you're completely correct if we're talking about the past, but you are where the industry is going. The industry is going to become more international. It's going to become more inclusive. It's going to be about global business. Uh, it's going to be about more types of motorsports than just drag racing. And he said, that's why we need people like you. And I said, well, okay, that's a pretty good argument. So <laughs> ran for the student board of directors. I was, I think, only the second or third person elected on my first try. And I was elected to three terms on the student board of directors, then elected SEMA chairman. And I served three more terms as um, incoming chairman, chairman, and then immediate past chairman. So I served 12 consecutive years on the SEMA board directors, wow. uh, which, was, which was my aha moment because what I realized was the industry has so much more to offer me than I can ever possibly offer it. And, and I had not been tapping into that before my association with SEMA. And what I learned from my association with SEMA is this is just a great big family. It's a bunch of car enthusiasts doing something they, they truly love. In fact, I describe SEMA as the largest collection of people in the world doing something they truly love. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, wonderful aha moment. I've attended the SEMA show for the last 25, 26 now years in a row. Fantastic organization. What fun. Very, very cool background. And thanks for your time and your efforts of uh, working on the board and helping support a great cause and so many great people. But you're right. It's just a whole bunch of people doing what they love. So makes it really cool. Well, speaking about doing what you love, let's talk a little bit about proudest career moments. I would assume you've had many, but is there one in particular that stands out for you? 
Probably. Hella had never really been successful at selling Toyota around the world because Japanese companies uh, at that time tended to buy from Japanese suppliers through the Koretsu system. And so Hella was viewed as a little bit of a, of an, a foreign or an overseas company. And so we identified opportunities for us in the United States, and one at the top of the list was Toyota, uh, Toyota Motor Sales. And so uh, the Germans uh, really weren't very keen on the idea. They kind of uh, uh, discouraged us from trying the idea, and we said, this is the biggest opportunity we may ever have. We really have to go do this. So we spent a year. We had two Japanese joint venture. Uh, we have a joint venture in the United States with two Japanese partners. And so we went to those partners, and we said, teach us how to do business the Toyota way. Hmm. So they gave us books to read, and I still have them, and I still read them from time to time, just going to read them again for the second, third, and fourth time. And, I, and I, one of those books was a book called The Machine That Changed the World. And The Machine That Changed the World is, uh, was a really eye-opening experience for me because it teaches you how to think about continuous improvement, and it teaches you how to be better tomorrow than you were today. And we weren't applying any of those principles in our business, but our Japanese partners taught us uh, how to implement those best practices and continuous improvement in our business. They told us what kinds of questions to expect from Toyota, and they told us how to answer those questions. And so by the time we finally got in front of Toyota, we knew the questions they were going to ask. We already had prepared the answers, and we, we knew how to answer the question, and we knew what systems to have in place. And, of course, a lot of it was about quality and a lot of it was about continuous improvement. And so the end result was the largest order we ever received was our opening order from Toyota. And within two years, Toyota was our largest customer in the United States. Wow. You know, that is an awesome story. And it's near and dear to my heart, the uh, practice of Kaizen. Uh, I'm familiar with that book. I read it years ago and presented it to some managers that I was overseeing when I was running a company. And, uh, yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful process, concept, way to think. And works really well. And what a, a great series of events that occurred to uh, that huge order that you got. So kudos to you and your team for what you guys did there. Very, very cool. I still keep a copy. I still keep copies of the machine that changed the world on my bookcase in my office. And I've probably given away about 200 copies of the book over the, the years because it is a is an eye-opening experience for any person, any business person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I've given away some myself, but nowhere near 200. So kudos to you for that, for sharing that really valuable knowledge with the people that uh, are around you. Really great. Let's have a little bit of fun here. What was your first really special car? Maybe you could share a memory you have with that vehicle. Oh, wow. There's so many. My first car was a 49 Plymouth that belonged to my grandfather. And my grandfather was kind of, uh, let's say he was thrifty. He would not drive the car in the rain. He did not order the car with a heater or a radio. And so the, the heater and radio were added later. But he was a car fanatic in his own way because the car was a, a source of pride and joy to him. So he never, he never drove the car in the rain. If it was raining, he would actually walk to work with an umbrella instead of driving the car. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so this, may, this whole car thing may just be in my DNA. I, I, I don't know. I think so. There was that. Uh, that was a very special car because it was a family car. Um, I'm sorry that I ever sold it. I wrecked it and sold it, and I, I still feel bad about that. And then I guess other special cars. My first Porsche 911 was really special because, to me, that was kind of the epitome of, of everything a sports car should be. I have a uh, my dream car from the days of Carroll Shelby. My dream car was always a Ford GT, mm -hmm. uh, GT40 back then, GT, GT now. 
And uh, about two years ago, I bought a Ford GT. Nice. You know, my track car is a Porsche 911 GT3, so I'm kind of doing the big American V8 and the the race car German sports car thing. Oh, yeah. Have a Shelby Mustang. So they're all special. I mean, it's just... uh, if I ever win the lottery, I'm going to go to Barrett-Jackson and really go crazy. <laughs> it sounds like you're having fun, though, just where you are with the cars that sit in your garage. Well, how about seller's remorse? You talk about that car of your grandfather's that you had to let go after a little accident, but is there one car in particular you really wish you had back in the garage? Well, probably my either my 72 Porsche 911 or my 89 BMW M3. It was an oh. E30 M3. Oh, yeah, E30. And both cars became a lot more valuable after I sold them. So, oh, ab- there's absolutely seller's remorse. There's a <laughs> ton of seller's remorse, but that's also what keeps this job interesting and keeps this industry interesting because the only way I, I have I have discovered the way to avoid seller's remorse, and that is just buy cars, don't sell any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes hard to do, but, you know, you and I share a lot in common. I let a 72S go a while back to fund my son's college education, and at the time I thought I got all the money and then some, and, of course, now it's probably worth twice that. So you kind of go, oh, but more so than the money, the car was just such a great car, really special. Those early Long Hood 911s are uh, near and dear to my heart. Now they just become ridiculously expensive, which is unfortunate. The way it goes... It is, but not if you have one or two. Uh, I've also, I'm also a driver. I will, if someone offered me a chance to go to the moon and they said you had to drive, sign me up. I'll go. <laughs> I, I, I've driven cross country 37 times. Oh my gosh. And I would go again tomorrow. I, I, I love driving and I love driving cross country. I think, I think driving cross country is kind of the last big American adventure uh, that, where you, you really can experience this country. And it's not like any other place on earth. I've been to about 45 countries, and this place is, is really, really unique in the world. Uh, and and for, especially for drivers, it's unique. Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Now, how about current projects? What are you guys working on today that really has you excited and fired up? This show is airing in the new year. So as we start the new year here, what's new and dear to your heart? Well, we have a lot of new products coming in the Corvette area because of the newest acquisition. And Corvette America is is a great company. So we're looking forward to expanding their product line more into C6 and C7 cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also will begin um, making more products for Porsche and BMW. We make some products for Porsche and BMW now, but we'll do more of that in the near future. Nice. And then, of course, we we have kind of a rolling demographic in our industry. Our core cars are, let's say, 1960 or so to about 1973. But what we're seeing is a lot of interest in C3 Corvettes. We are seeing, because they're relatively inexpensive, they're good-looking cars, and for not a lot of money, you can make them cool and fast. Right. So we're also seeing a lot of interest in Fox-bodied Mustangs. We own a company called Mr. Mustang, so we'll be doing a lot of development work with various Mustang chassis. Oh, that's another car I'm building. I'm building a 70 Boss 428 Super Cobra Jet right now, a drag pack car. Ooh, wow. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to stumble into a one-of-one car. So I have the only 1970 Mustang built in this configuration. So oh, wow. I should be have that on the road in January, so I'm really excited about that. Very cool. I, I'll add one thing, Mark. You okay. know. All of our companies and, and the restoration market in general, and this is this is really why Christine is here and why she's so such an important addition to our team. This industry was founded on the assumption that someone's going to get in their car, drive down to a parts store or a restoration shop, and there'll be usually a guy there who's been there 25 years, and he knows everything. 
about your car. Mm -hmm. And he's going to walk you through what you need to do to your car and how to do it. And and he'll do it for you, probably. But he's certainly going to sell you the parts and the right parts for your car. Well, the problem today is if you go into a a typical retail auto parts store, there could be a kid behind the counter that was delivering pizzas yesterday. So it's a real challenge now to get the right information into the right hand. So increasingly, we're relying on the Internet, social media. This is why all of the the retailers have Internet initiatives and information initiatives, which is a good thing because it helps, helps us get the right parts into the right hands. So what we're seeing now is the importance of social media, digital marketing, uh, electronic media, how-to videos, all these kinds of things that we never had before in this industry are becoming very, very important. All right, Mitch, I have a very introspective question for you. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? I would be a Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe. And why is that? Because there's only six of them. <laughs> so they're pretty special. They're really fast. They look great. And uh, it's it's a statement car. It, it's, uh, it's a car that it changed the world, really. I mean, it won the first World Manufacturers Championship for an American manufacturer. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of been making history ever since. Absolutely. Very cool. Great choice. Well, Mitch, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Mitch, we're back and we're entering the last lap. You're a guy that likes to be out on the track, so you know what this means. The white flag is out. Time to put your foot into it. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yes. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Find someone doing it better than you are and ask for advice. (laughs) Great. I love it. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? I think the German fellow that I alluded to earlier that I worked for, he made me commit to doing it right and doing it once. And I think if you have a personal mentality, you can be a bit of a perfectionist, but if you have a personal mentality of doing it right and doing it once, I think you uh, avoid a lot of headaches in life. Oh, boy, absolutely. How about a resource? I know there are a lot of them out there, but is there one in particular you think the Cars Yow listeners would really enjoy? SEMA. It's a treasure chest of knowledge about this industry and about cars. Absolutely. Is there one book in particular? You mentioned the the book at the beginning of our talk, but is there another book you'd like to recommend that our listeners read? Well, uh, I think there's another book after The Machine That Changed the World called Lean Thinking by the same authors. That one really teaches you how to make better products uh, more cost effectively. And that's that's an unusual concept for a lot of people, but I, I think that one is is just as important as the first one. Ah, great books, both of them. Thank you. And I'll remind our listeners you can find all these great resources that Mitch has been so kind to share with us today at carsyeah.com slash Mitch Williams. 
There's also another great place on the Cardishow website, Guest Recommended Books, where these books and all the past 420 guests have recommended books with quick, easy links so you can get your hands on all this reference material. All right, Mitch, we are up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, I'm sorry, I said just one, but don't worry about the price because today I'm going to write the check. What would that one vehicle be, and more importantly, why? I think it would have to be a Ford GT, which is in my garage. And the reason for that is because it's pretty valuable, but it's not so valuable that you can't drive it. I think cars are made to be driven. So I I don't ever want to own a car that is so valuable I can't really drive it because I want to be on the open road. Absolutely. Uh, They're beautiful cars. I've had the the pleasure of driving one even on a racetrack, and they're just ah, wonderful. You've got that engine sitting right behind your head and uh, the supercharger spooling up. It's just a wonderful, wonderful car. What color is yours? White with blue stripes, of course. Ah, My favorite. American American racing colors. What else? (laughs) I know. You know, I even have a little matchbox by Lesney that's that exact same car that I got when I was a little kid. So I'm jealous. Well, I'm going to have to come and visit and get a ride with you. Of course. I had the same matchbox by Lesney car, Mark, and that's why mine is white with blue stripes. Ah, wonderful. Well, we have a lot in common, my friend. That's great. Well, Mitch, you've taken me on a great ride today. I've really enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yeah listeners and with me today. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off down the racetrack in your Ford GT? I think I rely on my faith a lot, uh, Mark, and I, um, I, I think if you conduct yourself in business uh, the way faithful people do, you find that business has a way of finding you. You don't really have to work too hard at it. Uh, success comes looking for you if you conduct yourself with integrity, honesty, and professionalism and respect for other people. And, um, and that's all, that's all, those are all faith-based kinds of characteristics. Absolutely. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and all your companies? Well, uh, rpui.com is our website. And uh, that will take you to links to various other websites that are that are the seven brands that are under RPUI. Awesome. Great. Well, listeners, again, you can find these links and everything we've talked about today at CarsYad.com. Just type Mitch into the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Mitch, thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with the listeners and with me. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Mark, thank you so much. How much do I owe you for letting me talk about cars for uh, 30 minutes? (laughs) Just one ride in that GT. That's all, my friend. (laughs) Consider it done. (laughs) All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!